I want to sincerely thank you for listening to this podcast at the mic. And I want to make sure that you're aware of a live special event taking place on Friday, November 11th from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern. That's Veterans Day. Step one is to head to youtube.com slash at the mic with Keith and subscribe to that channel. Be sure to click the bell for notifications. And every time we go live or something new is posted, you will be informed. So what's the purpose of this live event? It's to raise money for our heroes, for our veterans. Beginning at 2 p.m. Eastern that day, we're going to raise money for the Mighty Oaks Foundation and for the One Tribe Foundation. Representatives from those two groups will be on hand, and we'll be talking to them and raising money for veterans. I hope you will join us on Friday, November 11th, 2 p.m. Eastern, youtube.com slash at the mic with Keith. And now I want to welcome you to this week's edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. Legendary sportscaster Vern Lundquist is my guest this week on At The Mic. We take a trip down six decades of sports memories with this legendary voice, Vern Lundquist. He's my guest coming up in just a moment. But first, let's talk about coffee. American Pride Roasters Coffee and the Dolly Madison Blend available right now at aprcoffee.com. James and Dolly Madison were one of America's most memorable couples. And who introduced the two? None other than future disgraced Vice President Aaron Burr. Although Dolly was five foot seven and James was five foot four, there was an instant attraction, and the two fell in love, got married in 1794, and remained devoted to one another for the rest of their lives. When Dolly Madison died in 1849, she was one of America's most beloved people, and of course, she is famously known for saving the iconic Gilbert Stuart painting of George Washington, a copy of the Declaration of Independence and other priceless treasures from the White House just moments before the British soldiers arrived during the War of 1812. Her meal was still warm when they broke into the presidential residence. That's how close she came to being captured, or worse, by the Redcoats, who, as you know, burned the White House that night. Well, in honor of that brave first lady, Dolly Madison, American Pride Roasters Coffee wants you to be aware of their Dolly Madison blend, which features French roasted South American beans with raspberry flavoring mixed in to add a dash of dessert flavor. And I think you should give it a try today when you head over to aprcoffee.com. And don't forget that promo code ATM stands for at the mic. ATM will get you 10% off your entire purchase at checkout. Check out all the blends that they have available at aprcoffee.com. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Vern Lundquist is the legendary play-by-play voice you hear on so many of sports' memorable moments throughout the years. He's been in the business for over six decades, from the Masters to the NFL, NCAA tournament basketball, college football. I mean, this guy has seen it all, he's covered it all, and he shares all of these great moments with us today in a memorable conversation. What a treat it was to sit down with Vern Lundquist, this week's guest on At The Mic. The one and only, the legend, Vern Lundquist, who anybody who has spent five minutes watching sports or following sports over the years knows this man. 
They know his voice. He's earned a Lifetime Achievement Award for his work in sports broadcasting. I don't, I don't know where to begin. Mr. Vern Lundquist, thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate it, man. Jesus, my pleasure and my privilege. I'm glad to do it. Thank you very much. You've been a part of ABC Sports, TNT, uh, most memorably your work with CBS Sports, I think, at least for me. I, I recently read your book, Play by Play, which is what really lit the spark for me to reach out to you and, and try to make this conversation happen. And it's such an incredible book. If you have a sports fan in your life, here's your ultimate Christmas present right here. It's play by play calling the wildest games in sports from sec football to college basketball, the masters and more. And my goodness, there is so much more. Uh, what a, what a life, man. I tell you what, yeah. I, 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 uh, let's, I tell you what, let's go to the beginning. Let's go to your childhood. I love that your parents named your siblings, David, Don, Tom, and Sharon. And then they named you Merton Lundquist. Yes. How did that happen, man? <laughs> because my dad was a narcissist. <laughs> and he passed that on to me, by the way. Uh, oh, no. no he, uh, honest to gosh. Uh, he went by Merton and they tagged me with Laverne. And so, and I kept that all the way through uh, uh, school, junior high, high school, college. And uh, uh, when I graduated, I got a job in radio. I spent one year in theological school and uh, realized six weeks in that I didn't have to commit much to that. But I got a job. Uh, this was in Rock Island, Illinois. And I, I've got 18 hours of credit. Uh, I, I vowed I was going to stay with it through one semester, one year. And uh, but I, I landed a job to, to pay the bills, and I worked as a late night disc jockey at WOC Dab and Radio in Davenport, Iowa, drove right across the Mississippi. And uh, uh, a guy named Bob Gifford auditioned me for the job. And he said, I like your work. I want to put you on the air of nine to midnight, but there's no way in God's green earth you're going on my radio station as Laverne. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is my chance to get rid of this darn thing. <laughs> there was a song very popular back when I was a kid. Well, not a little older than that, but uh, called A Boy Named Sue, uh -huh. sung by Johnny Cash. And I related to that because the okay. guy got in fist fights and was teased and so anyway what we settled on is i dropped the la off and so i it became Vern. this was in 1962 so uh, almost well 60 years exactly wow and to this day keith uh when when our home phone rings and my wife will answer it nancy will and she'll say it's for you from high school or college because somebody will call and say is laverno <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm 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 feeling the age now, but wow. I graduated high school in 1958, wow. and uh, to this day, when we would go back for reunions, uh, high school classmates would call me Laverne, and it was kind of a teasing thing because <laughs> they, they were aware that I changed my name to. I never did legally, so to this day. Huh. Whenever I sign a legal document, it's got to be Merton Laverne Lundquist Jr. Wow. And I wince every time. I should have gone to court, but <laughs> I didn't because I knew it would be, uh, it would be 
dishonoring my mother and dad. I and uh, I, I, that, I didn't have that in me. So Understood. Yeah. And you mentioned your parents there. Your dad was um, a Lutheran pastor, right? Because mm-hmm. you were born in Minnesota. And then you guys right. moved to Washington State because uh, he got a calling there, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, uh, that's correct. And, and, and I think that you, for the longest time, like you said, you even mentioned that you went to seminary briefly. Uh, I mean, that was going to be your path as well, right? But but if, if I remember correctly from the book, you had an experience in Washington State at a radio station that really sparked in you, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You, you read it thoroughly. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, we had a we had a local radio station. Call letters were K R K O in Everett, Washington, mm-hmm. and they would do church announcements on Friday afternoon at some point. It was an eclectic radio station, as most of them were in those days. And I was in, I think, the second or third grade, and and. Uh, Dad asked me if I wanted to go to the radio station while he dropped off the church announcements for the weekend. And I walked in, and I still remember it. Uh, I was seven years old, I'm quite sure. And and uh, I was just mesmerized by this control room and these microphones and, and the potentiometers. Uh, <laughs> we called them pots. Pots, yeah, then, you turn them. Yeah, you, yeah, you turn them to uh, to uh, adjust the sound, raise the volume, or lower it. And I just I was fascinated by that, and I carried that with me uh, forever and ever. And when I was in high school, uh, I realized I wasn't an athlete. Uh, that and that I, I've been around athletes all my life now, and uh, I've asked many of them, professional athletes, at what point in your life did you realize that you had a gift that very few others did. And most of them, for most of them was in junior high school. Hmm. And, uh, uh, but for me, I know I, you know, I realized that I could talk about it, but I couldn't do it. And, uh, <laughs> so I tried to find compensation in some other way. And that was, uh, to write about it. I wrote a, a sports column for, um, actually junior high, high school and college. And then I did a lot of public address announcing, uh, especially when I'm high school and college. I did the PA at the football games and basketball games. And I landed a job as a weekend disc jockey, my first paying job, my senior year at college at KWED in Seguin, Texas. And I got paid what I thought was a lavish amount, a dollar and five cents an hour. Nice. <laughs> and yeah, and I, I worked uh, Saturday and Sunday and I put the station on the air in the morning, took us off the air at night, cut off the transmitter. I had some fantasy of combining radio television with uh, with the church. And now and I, I actually somewhere back in the memorabilia room back this way, uh, I've got a letter from a Dr. John Bachman at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And I wrote him because they provided an avenue uh, to combine the two interests, uh, church, uh, religion, and and, uh, broadcasting. And he wrote me back and he said, I think your best path would be to go to seminary, uh, become an ordained pastor, and then see how it would work out. Mm -hmm. So on his recommendation, 
That's why I went to theological school. Okay. Uh, but it took me six weeks, and I thought, no, <laughs> uh, this is not for me. So I, I landed the first big break I got was uh, I applied for a summer replacement disc jockey job at KTBC in Austin. I was an FM disc jockey, summer, summers only, uh, playing soft music uh, at night on the FM station. And, uh, and I lived at home with my mother and dad, and I had decided then that I, it was not my future to go back to theological school. And so the sports job opened up at KTBC. This was a station owned by President Mrs. Johnson. And I audaciously went to the program director and said, could I audition for it? And he said, well, you're going back to school. I said, no, I'm not so sure. (laughs) And so August 1st, I auditioned for it. Uh, The the sports opening, the guy who had had the job, I'd grown up watching. And he took a job in Houston. A wonderful guy named Dan Love. And uh, the program director, ironically named Richard Cactus Pryor. And uh, he was a humorous guy. God, he was funny. Uh, he said, I don't know, I'm not ready to put you on Monday through Friday, but how about you do weekends and we'll have you do a disc jockey show on AM radio from five to nine. So that was the start. And I was there three years. My aspirations were a little larger than sure. staying in Austin yeah. for the rest of my yeah. life. Yeah. And, and I, I want to put a, can I put a bookmark right there for a moment, Vern? Sure. I want to sure. pick that back up um, in Austin, but I think you and the family moved there when you were about 12 years old, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I recall you mentioned in the book about the, uh, the radio playhouse that you were a part of. Yes. One of the things we ask about in this podcast at the mic is, you know, some of your most embarrassing moments. And I know somewhere back there on the wall, in addition to what you just talked about, there's there's something, I think, uh, from the Radio Playhouse, if I'm not mistaken, that was given to you when you were real young, right? I'm looking at it. I love it. See, I knew it. <laughs> Let me see. I don't know. Okay, cool. No, that's cool. Okay. How great. You, I'm pointing at it. It's the very top. Okay. The very top. Yeah. Um, and it's 1954. How cool is that? And you were yeah. you were the youngest, right? That, that was a part yes, of it. Yes, I was. Right. Uh, but something happened. <laughs> I was in the eighth grade, Keith. Uh-huh. And uh, we had, a, a, as most junior high schools do, we had a sequence in the fall. You had to take six weeks of three different uh, courses. And mine were typing, home economics, and speech. And we were in the speech section of it. My teacher said, you know, you're not afraid of standing up in front of a crowd of a group of students, your fellow students. There's a spot open for at Radio House on the University of Texas. There was not a television department at that time. They called and asked if I could recommend someone to go over there on Tuesday nights. And uh, they have they do tape recorded plays as laboratory projects. Uh, for their radio majors. And I went over that Tuesday night. My dad took me over, dropped me off, and I was there for two hours. And I played the part of a 10-year-old Indian kid. And these were the days when they created their own sound effects. And I can remember they had had a long, uh, it looked like some kind of a game tray. And it was filled with sand. 
and they upside down, they cut coconuts in half, and the, the sound technician would clop the coconuts, and that was the horse's hooves. <laughs> and it was just amazing. Yeah. And I was mesmerized by it. And uh, they invited me back. And so I did that for one year, 54, 55. Then they, they called again over the, after the summer was complete, back in school. I was in the ninth grade now. And they called and said, we'd like you to come back. And I went over there, and they asked me to read the child's part. And I went, well, okay, I'll do that. I'd had a voice change. Your voice has changed. Yeah. They said, thank you very much. Good luck in your next endeavor. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So I did it for just one year. But they called me when they did their annual awards banquet. And I was that that little certificate was signed in the spring of 1955. And I'm a rat packer and I save everything. Yeah. And when we were putting all this stuff up uh, that kind of encapsulates a 60 year career. That is so uh, great. I found that and said, honey, we got to frame this. And so mm -hmm. we did. That is so yeah. cool, man. That's great. Now, I know that you're a big fan of music. I know that you serve on the board of directors for the um, Strings Music Festival, right? In uh, Steamboat mm -hmm. Springs, Colorado. Which, by the way, can you're I just good. say, you're good. I, I have recently spent uh, quite a bit of time in Colorado. I have explored all over it. It is just such a lovely, lovely state that you've chosen to reside in. Um, but but going back to your your love of music, mm -hmm. I know you are in a band called the Flat Tops. So you oh my gosh, you gotta tell us. You gotta tell us about the flat tops, man. Okay, and I love the way it's. I don't know if you're gonna state it the same way here, but I absolutely love the way it's. It's written in the book of, as to why the flat tops were no more. <laughs> well, I'll share. The, as a matter of fact, let me name drop a little bit. Okay, all right. Uh, and and because I told this story at a group dinner last night, we have a group of fifteen men uh, who share one thing in common. Uh, they're all members of Augusta National. Okay. And these 15 led by Billy Payne, who was the former chairman. Hey, he brought uh, the Olympics group. to my hometown. Yeah, he, did. he ran the Olympics in Atlanta. Well, Billy brought these 14 other guys together and they bought a property about 10 miles south of town. It's called Windwalker. Okay. And Bill Griffin is the guy who that I'm very good friends with. Uh, Bill brought four couples with him. And that when Nancy and I were invited out there last night and, uh, it was it was a great night. Among those who were present was Lynn Swan, the, the Hall of Fame player for Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they were talking about stories of, of, of things that I've done. And uh, we were seniors in high school at Stephen F. Austin High School in Austin, Texas. And four of us <clears throat> decided we were all members of the student choir high school choir, and the four of us decided, well, let's try and form a group. And so we were a doo-wop group. We were popular enough in Austin and little surrounding towns that we actually had an, um, an agent of this jockey at KTBC, ironically, uh, named Bill Quay. And we got booked into Friday Night Sock Hops and all that kind of stuff. Well, uh, one of the guys could sing, and the three others of us were background. Do ah, do ah, you know, all that <laughs> stuff from the 50s and 60s. And uh, 
we were reasonably popular in town. There was another group at a rival high school that was better than we were. And they actually got in the, the Clark bandstand show. Oh, wow. And they had a top 10 hit. Uh, you would never have heard it, I'm sure, but it was called You Cheated, You Lied, You Said That You Love Me. And uh, they they rode that to the Dick Clark. And then we were crushed because oh. we couldn't find a, a niche like that. So anyway, uh-huh. we'd play the Friday night things. Dan Showalter is our lead singer. In the parlance of the day, Dan got his girlfriend, Sharon, in a family way. And uh, so he had to drop out. And, and the rest of us, the three of us looked at each other and said, well, we're finished. They're finished, yeah. yeah. And that was, that was the end of any kind of musical career. You sure, you sure. I, I think it's uh, fascinating. In the 50s, you saw Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Frankie Lyman, uh, Elvis Presley, all in person at the same show. My goodness. I, I I hesitate to ask you, but no chance that ticket stub is hanging on that wall back there anywhere. I wish it was. Yeah. I wish, I wish, I wish. Sorry. It happened in San Antonio. Wow. And How cool is that? So you could get your driver's license at 14. Yeah. In, Texas in those days. I was and stunned we, when I read that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And how about that? And we had a, I think it had to do with rural areas. Uh-huh. And children being capable of driving to help their parents out, I believe that was the uh, that the initiation of that rule, that law. Uh, but we had a, a guy who had his driver's license, so we chugged down to San Antonio and and watched. Elvis Presley was the fourth listed performer. <laughs> we we knew he had just made oh whatever his first hit was. Oh, now, uh, one of his first hits. Was Hound Dog, I think. I think that and, was one. But I mean, he was extraordinary. Yeah. Just extraordinary. You, you got to tell us about your first radio show, Playhouse of Hits, but something happened the first time you introduced the show <laughs> that's going to require, require, require some editing on my part later. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> well, uh, I would, I reported. And I told all the kids in the dormitory, all the guys, hey, I'm going to be on the radio today. Make sure you <laughs> tune in. And the, the morning was spent uh, plugging in and then unplugging a variety of religious ser- services. So we'd open with the Baptist church and next would be an hour for the Methodist. And then we'd go to the Presbyterian. We'd do the Catholic mass and we'd get up to 11 o'clock. And that was the Texas Lutheran University. And so we do the Lutheran church. And then at noon, by golly, I got to be a disc jockey. <laughs> and the show was called Playhouse of Hits. Uh-huh. And I can vividly remember with some degree of chills <laughs> that I queued up a very popular song at the time called Brazilian Sleigh Bells by Percy Faith and the Orchestra. Ah. And I cued it, and I practiced this. I eased the potentiometer up to increase the volume. I slipped open the microphone. I had cleared my throat beforehand, and I let it establish for 10, 15 seconds. I smoothed it down and said, I'm Vern Lundquist. Welcome from now till 6 to the Playhouse of Shits. <laughs> Uh, man, I'm glad this. I'm glad this is a podcast. Yeah, yeah. 
This is uh yeah, exactly. Um okay. The chill started at my toes see? and went up to my waist. I mean, oh man. man yeah. Okay, so our experiences were very similar the first time we cracked the mic, you and I. Um mine was um less memorable, however. Uh, but I, here's what I recall because I was nervous, my hand shaking, and, and yep. my hand is just sweating. And, and I am volunteering at my church's radio station and I'm my big moment, man, my family's listening because they know at the top of the hour, I'm going to give them the call letters, the time and the temp. Okay. Now the call letters and the time I know it's going to be, I think it was 10 AM. Right. And I, and of course I've written down everything exactly as I'm going to say. And the current temperature is, and I remember just writing the temperature and scratching it out, writing the temperature because it just kept changing. And so now when it comes time, I crack the microphone, I'm shaking, sweating. And anyway, so I, I said it. There was nothing memorable about how I said it, but I just remember writing the temperature like six or seven times, you know. Over the hour <laughs> up. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. but but man, that is uh that's a classic story right there that you, and then of course you got teased on campus and, and that, that was kind of fun. Um, but I want to go back to Austin now where you were working at that radio station and you were there the day JFK was assassinated. Uh, tell us about that day for you, man. Yeah, I, I was, uh, my disc jockey shift was from five to nine every night, but periodically I'd come in as a, temporary relief uh, and then this on november 22nd of 63 i was working the noon news block so i'm in the control room and uh we had the 15 minute newscast and, and our control room in that those primitive days was almost adjacent to the newsroom and so you could walk if you're the announcer in radio uh you could just open the door and you were in the the announced booth and then i'm in i'm the uh, at running the controls at the time and uh we did the noon news we did the uh, weather report and we were on a pre-recorded agricultural report uh about 12 25 in the afternoon ironically i'm on the phone uh because i wasn't on the air i'm just running the board i was on the phone with the with my boss's the station manager's daughter who was a high school classmate of mine. Her name is Nita Louise Kellum, and she's still living. And uh, she was calling me to tell me that her father had arranged for me to not have to work that five to nine shift so that I could accompany her to listen to JFK speak that night because his, his itinerary was, he started the morning in Fort Worth, right. flew Air Force One, it's only 35 miles. Yeah. But he flew over to Dallas, landed in Low Field. And I was confirming with her that I would be her escort. We weren't dating. It was just a chance for us to, to sit in the audience to listen to President Kennedy. Right. And Hal Nelson, the newsman, opened the door and gestured to me, said, put me on the air immediately. And I broke into the, I said, Nita, I got to go. Hung up the phone and, and uh, opened the mic for Hal. And then he said, bulletin upi united press international president has been shot and he filled with wire copy as long as he could and then we had a television monitor in the control room and we were a cbs affiliate and 
I looked up and Walter Cronkite was on the air. And so we were told, you know, that he was coming on to switch our audio so that Cronkite's television appearance could be broadcast over the radio station, which we did. And I loved the guy. And like millions of Americans and those around the world, yeah. uh, we, we, and then that night, we were all pressed into service, everybody. And uh, I went back to the newsroom because we gave over the whole afternoon. And Cronkite was on the air for, through, the, through the funeral, I know, nonstop. Uh, and I was told that CBS was going to send in uh, a correspondent from Washington to do background on President Johnson's background. Uh, his name was David Schumacher. Dan Rather was covering for the White House, uh, covering the White House for CBS News. And he was with the Kennedy entourage in, in Dallas. But this correspondent, David Schumacher, uh, flew in. I picked him up at the airport and flew him, David, and audio guy and, and a photographer. And we drove 60 miles to Johnson City. And uh, I was their driver. And uh, he had a list of names of Johnson's friends. So we spent from 8 o'clock until 2.30 in the morning, 3 o'clock. And we went to a variety of different homes. And David did background on what, what is President Johnson like. Mm -hmm. uh, just, and they, they were going to use this as filler material. No one knew how long uh, CBS News would be on the air. So... We did those interviews. It was film, not videotape. And I drove David to the Austin airport. He flew from Austin, Dallas, and then back to uh, Washington. They processed all the film, got it to New York. And then they, I don't know what they used. I'm not sure. But there was a lot of time to fill. And so that was my memory. Now, let me tell you about the night before the Kennedy assassination. Hmm. There was an extremely popular group at the time called Peter, Paul, and Mary. Mm -hmm. And a folk group, just marvelous. And Mary Travers was the female member of that group. And uh, they were doing a, a performance in Austin the night before the assassination. And she had recently been married. Her husband, Barry, was a photographer. And he was not with the group when they appeared. I went there and I had a backstage pass because being a local disc jockey. Mm -hmm. And uh, the guy named Mac Hudson, who was a competitive disc jockey, said, we're all going to dinner. After, would you like to be her escort? So I was a dinner partner of the Mary Travers the night and heard her talk. They had just, wow. in August of that year, they had appeared uh, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and performed for a crowd of 200,000 people when Martin Luther King did his I Have a Dream speech. So... That whole weekend is just seared into my brain. What, what That's it's amazing. Um, okay, so when you're in Austin, you of course covered the Texas Longhorns during your time there, and people are going to have to read the book to to hear about your memorable experiences with Coach Daryl Royal. Mm -hmm. uh, that's some great stuff in there. Um, great stories from your time as the. Uh, radio voice of the Dallas Cowboys, a post you held from 1967 to 1984. That is, there's some great stuff there. But I have to ask you, and I'm sorry to do this. I apologize in advance. But 
briefly talk to us about bowling for dollars, please. Oh, come on. <laughs> You're killing me. If nothing You're else, Burn, if nothing else, okay? You don't need to spend a lot of time talking about this because I, I know that it's probably not something you want to talk about, but you have to at least tell us about the wardrobes they forced you into, okay? You know, it's funny, Keith. Uh, it's almost as if I was able to use last night's preparation for this uh, conversation. Oh, great. <laughs> because, yeah, because... Uh, the 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 the, uh, the members of Augusta who were present at this dinner <laughs> were led by a dear friend of mine named Bill Griffith, and he knew the bowling. Story. Oh no, sorry. And he, he <laughs> kicked me under the table and he said, "Tell him the bowling for dollar story." Uh, the show aired uh, for a half an hour uh, for two years, and I still don't know exactly why uh, it. <laughs> because it was ragingly popular in Dallas. Yeah. I, I was called into the manager's office, and he, they said, uh, we've been granted a franchise for this game show called Bowling for Dollars, and you're going to be our host. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no. And he said, uh, who signed your paycheck? Oh, no. And I said, you have a valid point. What? What? <laughs> and he said, okay, we, we knew you were going to say no. Because I had just, I was two years into the Cowboy Radio play-by-play job. Uh -huh. And I was pretty self-impressed. <laughs> and uh, they said, we knew that you were going to say, uh-uh. Uh -huh. So here's a phone number. And this is a phone number for Mr. Chick Hearn, who is the voice of the Los Angeles Lakers. But he also hosts this show on KTLA, the independent station in Los Angeles. He is expecting your call. So I scrunched up and dialed Chick Hearn, whom I did not know. <laughs> and he was very gracious. He took the call. I said, tell me a little bit about this bowling show. He said, it's a half an hour. Uh, we tape six of them every Monday and we crank them out like sausage. Uh, and then we can take every fifth week, every yeah, fifth week off. And, and get a little pause. And I said, well, he gave me the format. You interview the guest. It was tacky, really. You interview the guest for a minute and a half. They're allowed to introduce friends and family who are there in the bowling center with you. Then they can say hello to anybody at home. And then the, the, the gimmick that made the show work is they had a big barrel. And the, the contestant would reach in and grab postcard on which was written somebody's name and contact. And that person who was selected would share everything that the contestant won. That's a great idea to keep people watching, man. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a great hook. I said, Oh, uh, Chick, how does it do in the ratings? He said, Oh my God, <laughs> we kill Huntley Brinkley. And he said, Walter Cronkite doesn't matter. He might as well not be in the air in LA. They, they ran it opposite both. And he said, whatever ABC throws. And I, I said, well, I get a little uppity. And I said, but you're the voice of the Los Angeles Lakers, Chad. I just was now two years into the, being the voice of the Dallas Cowboys. How about your dignity? <laughs> and he said, son, listen to me and listen to me well. <laughs> Do the show. Take the money build a pool in your backyard and move on with your life. <laughs> so I said, well, I swallowed hard and I said, okay, 
I agreed to do the show. And at the end of the first year, uh, 74, I get a call from ABC. We were an ABC affiliate in Dallas. And uh, I was doing some little work for ABC at the time. But they called and said, uh, the Thanksgiving assignments are in. And you're going to be doing your first national telecast, uh, Texas at Texas A&M. Well, for a kid who grew up in Texas, essentially, I knew Coach Royal. I knew Emery Ballard, the head coach at A&M. Uh, it was number five against number two in College Station. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I went down with my best friend, who was my spotter. Uh, he passed away about 10 years ago. And... Uh, his name was Joe Cash. So we do the game, and it was it went very well. Frank Broyles, uh, head coach at Arkansas at the time, and the athletic director was my partner. And Joe and I are in the car driving back to Dallas-Fort Worth for a late Thanksgiving dinner on Friday night. His wife and my then wife, my former wife, uh, had prepared a meal for us. So he's driving. I'm still got my yellow mustard coat on. And we pull into a gas station in Fairfield, Texas. And this is when they still did full service. So the guy came out and he uh, opened the hood, checked the, uh, the fluid, uh, did the tires, put the hood down, filled it up with gas. Now he's doing the windshield. And Joe went in to use the facility. And so I'm sitting there feeling very, very self-important. And... Uh, <laughs> the guy started rubbing the windshield, and I could tell. You get this little hint. Well, he, he, by golly, he knows who I am. <laughs> and he's going to say something real nice about the telecast today. And he kept looking, and I thought, well, I can make sure he knows who I am. So I turned, <laughs> see that little ABC patch on? <laughs> and he kept rubbing the windshield, and finally, he put it down, turned back, and yelled inside the gas station. Rudy, Rudy, God Almighty, get out here. It's that bowling for dollars dude on the TV. <laughs> oh, no. That didn't feel good, did it? <laughs> Not at all. It was really popular. Yeah. 607. And we did what Chick Hearn and the show had accomplished in the Los Angeles. We killed it, whatever was opposite us. Uh-huh. I don't understand why, <laughs> but at the end of the two years, they pulled the plug uh-huh. to my everlasting relief. I bet. Yeah. Cause, cause you were, you, you write in the book about all of the butterfly collars and, and the fashion. Oh, of the era. Oh, and, uh, oh. Uh, we don't have to spend any more time on this, uh, but I want to, I want to move into your sports memories um, because you do an incredible job in the book of describing the situation there in green Bay for the ice bowl Cowboys and Packers, just brutal conditions. I think it was 13 below zero. I I just wonder if, and I encourage people to read the book play by play because it's, it takes you right there. Um, What's, what's one thing that you think about when, when you think back to the ice bowl, what's the first thing that jumps out in your mind from that moment? Well, uh, times were so simple in the late sixties. And I was in my first year with the Cowboy Network. I was doing pregame, postgame, and halftime shows. And uh, I'd flown up on the charter with the Dallas Cowboys and uh, probably six members of the written media. Uh, They allowed me to bring 
uh, a camera with me. I was doing radio, but uh, in my role as a sports director for Channel 8 in Dallas, I was allowed to bring Jack Murray, a photographer. And I had worked with the SID with the Packers, uh, Chuck Lane, to arrange an interview with Coach Lombardi after the Dallas media met with him. And he met with them privately, just the six writers and, and columnists on Friday afternoon. So we started the meeting probably at one o'clock and Jack had set up down on the, on the field at Lambeau. So he was waiting and uh, the writer's session ended and I looked at Coach Lombardi and he knew I was there and he knew we were going to do this. <laughs> and I said, uh, Coach, I'm ready to go down and, uh, and do the interview now. We'll take the elevator down and walk in the field. He said, I'm not going to do it. And I said, sir, we'd agreed to this. And he looked at me and he said, I don't do television unless I'm in a coat and tie. And I said, if it will make you feel more comfortable, I'd take this coat off and this tie off right now. It was about 35 degrees. It wasn't uh, terribly uncomfortable. And, and he said no, and he walked out of the room. And I looked at Chuck and I said, you got to help me here. Because I'm here on the premise that we're going to have something on Channel 8 on Saturday night. Yeah. And so Chuck said, give me two minutes. And soon enough, Lombardi came back in in a very gruff voice. He said, okay, let's get this over. <laughs> and we got in the elevator, quiet ride down. And uh, he walked out in the field. And uh, he agreed. And he was very gracious during the conversation that was being filmed. But the topic of discussion was the expenditure of $25,000 that had been made in the summer to put electric grid underneath Lambeau Field. The purpose of which was to ensure that it would never, ever freeze. <laughs> then we woke up, wake up call, I'll never forget the wake up call, <laughs> Northland Hotel, 7.30 Saturday morning. Uh, it was sunny outside. Mr. Lundquist, uh, welcome to Green Bay. It's uh, sunny and minus 13 degrees below zero. Oh. And it got worse. It got worse. Uh, the Cowboys always used to travel. They probably still do in three buses. First bus, senior players, veteran players. Second bus, younger players, rookies and, and first year guys. Third bus, media. And I'm on the media bus with Jack and the writers and uh, a guy named Frank Luxon, in those days, he had carried a, an old portable typewriter and he had it in the case and he was big, heavy coat on. I remember him getting off the bus and taking a step and he hit ice and Frank and his typewriter went tumbling down into a ditch and to help him get out was arduous. But anyway, we watched the game and of course it, it started at 13 below zero. And the chill factor was off the charts. And by the time the game ended, it was 20 below zero with a 15 mile an hour wind. So it was, I, I was doing pre, post and halftime, right? And Bill Mercer was the play-by-play guy and Blackie Sherrod, who was a great, great columnist for the Dallas Times Herald, was a color guy. So I had nothing to do in the second half. And other than watch the game. So I wandered into the CBS television booth and they knew me and I was welcome to go in. And I watched Frank Gifford, who was doing the game with Pat Summerall and Ray Scott. They split announcers. 
And I watched Frank take a cup of coffee and turned it upside down. And the coffee was frozen in the cup. And wow. uh, several guys on, on the Cowboys got frostbite. I know George Andrew, the defensive tackle, did. Defensive end, rather. Uh, Bob Lilly had a touch of it. And uh, Do you think they would play that game today in the NFL? I don't. Well, you know what now, Keith? They did play a game with Dan Fouts in San Diego at Cincinnati that yeah. I'm told was even colder. Yeah, wind chill in that one. Yeah, I, yeah, uh-huh. But and I mean, Dan, that was that was what that was the early '80s. So, yeah. but I, I wonder today if they would just make it. You know, I I don't know what they do. I honestly have no idea what they would do. Yeah. It would be interesting to see. Yeah, um, the book that everyone needs to check out, play by play. It 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 has so many of these great stories in sports history that that you were right in the middle of. And by the way. By the way, people have to check out the book, uh, if nothing else, for these interesting hotel conversations with people like Keith Jackson and how that relates to the 1980 Olympics and the uh, Miracle on Ice. Oh, yeah. uh, they need to find out about the, uh, what was it? Was it the Soup Nose Club or something? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm just saying, you got to you gotta check out the book. Yeah. Check out, you know? Uh, um, oh, yeah. But the soup note, I've won it twice, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really, oh, so, I'm not so, proud of those days. I'm proud of those days. Okay, so here, here's a story that I want to leave the setup here. Uh, Brent Musburger had upset Pat Summerall. And I find it just a hilarious story. Could you please tell us how Pat Summerall got back at Brent Musburger. Um, was it the Masters or was it? It was the Masters, Masters tournament, Masters, right? Masters, okay. Masters, yeah. This yeah. is this is hysterical. Could you please share the Brent Musburger getting I'd be it? Glad to. Having his I, don't think, I don't think Brent is happy that I've shared this story. Oh. But I saw it happen. I saw it happen. Uh, Brent had the clout back then to have himself assigned to Augusta. Uh-huh. He went to management. He said, I'm the lead guy. Uh, and at the time, he was, he, he had usurped, he kicked Gary Bender out of the college game. So for a while, Brent was, uh, he would do college games on Saturday and fly privately back to New York and, uh, and host the NFL today with Phyllis and uh, Irv Cross and Jimmy the Greek. Uh-huh. And we got to calling that charter the Big Dog Air. Because Brent was the big dog. So he knew zilch about the the game of golf. Zilch. (laughs) But he got himself assigned to host uh, Butler Cabin Ceremonies and and come on the air and be the welcoming guest. And then he would throw it to Summerall. uh, And Summerall chafed. They they did not care for each other. I'm being very kind and very polite. And... uh, (laughs) So comes a Wednesday night, uh, and we used to do, if you're not familiar with it, it's a gambling game called a Calcutta. And guys are gathered, and uh, we had a, an MC or interlocutor or whatever you want to call him, who ran the Calcutta. His name was Bob Drum, and he was, he's the guy who wrote for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. 
Mm. He's gone now, as is Pat, of course. And he's the guy who popularized, he found Arnold Palmer and popularized, he he coined the phrase Arnie's Army. So, oh. and Bob Bob had this big, beat, raspy, deep, deep voice. So they knew that Brent didn't know anything about the sport. <laughs> and so uh, Pat and Ben Wright, who was his Sancho Panza and Don Quixote, uh, they knew Brent liked to gamble. So did Pat. So did Ben. I would go just for the entertainment value. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm not impure, but I just never have never found the attraction uh-huh. in, in losing money. And uh, <laughs> so uh, they would artificially inflate uh, the value of a golfer in hopes that they could get Brent. Well, if, if Pat and Ben are betting on this guy, I better get in the action. And he had the money to do it. So they went on and on, and Brent would bite every time. And the guy in particular was Raymond Floyd, who was past his prime. Uh, Raymond, of course, had won the Masters, but this was years before. So they got Raymond up to $7,700. $7,600, I'm sorry. And Brent said, I'm going to $77. And going once, twice, three times, Brent, you just bought Raymond Floyd. Okay. So Raymond shoots 77 in the first round. Oh, boy. And on the all key, which means everybody associated with the telecast can <laughs> hear him. <laughs> That's it. In that unmistakable style of his, Mr. Musburger, it's by calculation that you have just expended $100 for each of the 77 strokes that Mr. Raymond Floyd took in the first round. <laughs> Brent was kind of humiliated. Yeah. I've got one more key, uh, one more Calcutta story. Okay. okay I yeah. told this last night at dinner. Real, sure. real quick, I, I just want to say, and from my estimation, I won't ask you to choose a side here. From my estimation, Brent Musburger absolutely deserved uh, that fate with uh, – Raymond Floyd at the Masters, just based on uh, how he treated his co-workers in the business. But anyhow, uh, the other Calcutta... One more, and I'll be glad to share. Jack Nicklaus is on the first tee at Augusta. And Brent had the clout to go with a cameraman. He approached Jack. He was going to film Jack for a CBS late-night show. Uh, film him teeing off for number one. And Jack suffered a back spasm and dropped to the ground and had to be helped into the cabin, went into the locker room, and Brent asked for and was given access, which is verboten. It's off limits. But Brent had the clout again to ask an Augusta national member, may I go in and and talk to Jack? Yes, you may. So he went up to Jack, and now this would be piped into the clubhouse. So and the locker room. Other guys, well, other guys heard him because he was in there. And he asked Jack how he felt. And Jack said, I'll be fine. It happens. It's happened to, to me before, but give me a couple hours and I'll be back in my feet. And Brett said, well, are you going to ask for a new tea time? You don't ask for a new tea time. It's not in the rules. But Brent didn't know that. So yet again, it yeah. didn't help his, Brent's credibility. No. Oh my goodness. Uh-huh. So one more, one more Calcutta story. 
Yes, yes, please. Uh, 86. Oh, I, I love this. I, I, yeah, this is in the book, and I love it, love it, love it. Please take the floor. Well, Bob Drum again uh, was conducting the ceremonies, and uh, in 1986, and Jack Nicholas's name came up for bidding late in the conversation. It wasn't mm -hmm. early, and uh, everybody else of value, deemed value at that point, had gone off the board. And so Bob Drum looked around the room. He said, Jack Nicholas, who's going to bid money for Jack Nicholas? Not a hand raise, nothing. <laughs> Come on, you guys, it's Jack Nicholas for crying out loud. Greatest golfers ever lived. Somebody give me money for Jack Nicholas. Quiet. And in the very back of the room, just about then, Tom Brookshire, Pat's former football partner, walked in with a guy named Charlie Brakefield and Bob looked up at Tom Brookshire and he said, Tom, congratulations. You just bought Jack Nicholas for $400. <laughs> now that's a Wednesday night, head forward to Sunday afternoon. And Jack did what he did famously at the mm -hmm. 17th and took the lead and walked through the 18th. So he's up by one. And I stood up, took my headset off. At the time, the 17th tower was open on the top. And uh, we were prone to get bad weather at times. And then there was a photographer's reporter's platform 10 feet up. I was 20 feet up. And I stood up, headsets off, and I looked over the, and there was Tom Brookshire looking up. And I said, Tommy, wasn't that the greatest thing you ever saw? He said, I got him in the Calcutta. $17,000. Wow. Very nice. Yes, yes, it was. That is great. Hey, let's talk about the Jack Nicholas 1986 Masters. 46 years old. He wins it. And of course, your legendary call on the 16th. Uh, yes, sir. I have to ask you, and I and I hesitate to ask you because I do not know the answer, and I'm terrified of the answer, but any chance we're gonna get to see you at the 16th? come april yeah you will yes yeah yeah, yeah sure. i am so you have no idea how that makes me happy yeah uh, i've got an unwritten agreement with cbs management my boss sean oh. McManus. uh i've done 38 yeah and next spring will be 39 uh -huh. and sean and i have uh, agreed that 40 is a nice round number and so given good health, which I assume I will have, yeah. uh, then, then I think I'll, I'll do the next one, uh, 2024. And then I'll, I'll walk graciously into that good night. And then I'll step aside and watch Jim Nance soar by me and, and set the oh. sights for longest-tenured oh, no. uh, announcer. I, 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 at that point, Keith, I will be the longest-tenured announcer at the Masters. But Jim has done one fewer than I have, and he's only 61 years old. And his wow. goal is to work, work till he's 75. Wow. And, yeah. And, and he'll achieve it. Uh, I, I just, my personal opinion is he and Nick Faldo were the best uh, anchor team in golf telecast. Mm. And now yeah. Nick has retired to Montana with his wife and, is going to stare at the Gallatin River and look at the 
mountains. Uh, but Trevor Immelman will be the replacement. I think Trevor, Masters champion 2008, I think Trevor will. It's going to be tough replacing Nick, but Trevor has the goods to do it. So anyway, that's my deal. And uh, I'll, I'll be very, very content uh, if I can reach 40 Masters tournaments. That's I'm so pleased to hear that. Like I said, I, I almost hesitated to ask because I just uh, fearful of the answer, but I'm so glad to hear that news, Mr. Lundquist. Okay. Yeah. You have covered, I think, I think the book, I think it said 20 different sports, but out of all of the sports you've covered, a lot of people who aren't usually into sports and, and watching it on TV know you from the Olympics. Right. And your partner at the Olympics with the figure skating was Scott Hamilton, just a great human being. And I, and I just, I loved, I loved hearing your praise for him in the book. I had the chance to briefly meet him. He came to the studios one time and I can absolutely confirm just a genuinely wonderful human being. You know what? Yeah. He's as good a guy as he is a skater, was a skater. Uh, He and Tracy, his wife live in, suburban nashville that's her hometown okay and uh, they have two naturally conceived sons and i say that only in the context of of scott fighting testicular cancer and then he had a benign tumor on his optic nerve so he's he's a battler i was gonna say in addition to what he battled as a child yes yes illness causes growth and and the high voice now he's five three and weighs 115 He's an adopted child, uh, Scott yeah. is. And one of the more poignant things in my life was to watch the night of Nancy and Tanya in Lillehammer. Scott and I were in the green room, the dressing area uh, that we shared with Tracy Wilson and our production crew. And uh, Scott was in the corner. He knew his dad was sick. And he got on the, on the phone talk to his dad. I've got home video that I was taking. I'm, I'm an incurable documentarian and I was taking video of his dad talking to Ernie, his his father. And then he hung up and we kibitz were getting ready in a casual way for the night. And, uh, Karen and then Scott's girlfriend called him and said, Ernie passed away 20 minutes ago. And I I said, Scott, do you want to, have Tracy come up and take your spot. He said, no, give me an hour. And he went out and walked. It was a quiet night, uh, and, but snow had fallen. And he just went for a walk for 35, 40 minutes and came back and he said, okay, I'm, I'm going to be fine. So he was facing that the night of uh, Tanya and Nancy. I mean, obviously that was a, an extraordinary event. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I, did I understand correctly in the book? Was this, if not the most, one of the most watched sporting events of all time? Yeah. And I had no idea that Scott Hamilton was going through this yeah. on the other side right. of the camera. Oh, my yes, God. Indeed. Yes, indeed. He, he sure was. And uh, he was terrific. He always was. Uh, he had a passion for this sport, unlike any other person. In the back of the book, Keith, I said, Somebody asked me, if you had one event to do again, uh, what would you choose to do? And I said this, I meant it then, and I still do. I feel this way. 
if I could sit next to Scott and share in one more Olympic event, that would be the punctuation point of my career. Uh, that is not going to happen, but uh, yeah. I feel that way about Scott and what he taught me about his sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll share this with you. I've seen him. He, he, he doesn't skate anymore, but when he retired from the Olympics, he formed a, a corporation and they, they formed a company called Stars on Ice. And it was all these Olympic skaters and they traveled around the country and chartered 737. And uh, I've seen him in Madison Square Garden, 18,000 people. And I saw him skate out on the ice by himself solo. And I've never seen charisma as exhibited by Mr. Scott Hamilton. He somehow reached into the upper rafters and brought those people down with him. And I mean... I remember I had worked with Terry Bradshaw and I thought I was aware of popularity uh, in the States. I'd worked with Sugar Ray Leonard who had worldwide recognition, but I'd never traveled with him. Uh, Scott and I, the first very serious event we did was in the city that was then called Leningrad. And we did uh, the European figure skating championships as a prelude to our first Olympic experience. And Scott and I, walked into the Ubalania Arena in St. Petersburg or Leningrad. Uh, it wasn't a large place, probably 8,500 to 10,000 people, no more than that. Uh, but he, it took him 25 minutes to get from the entrance to the arena to our broadcast booth because people adored him. Russian people adored him and stopped him and asked for autographs. Uh, they didn't have cell phones in, but they were taking Polaroid pictures. You know, anything as a memento of their interaction with this uh, Olympic champion. And it was uh, it dazzled me to understand the impact of worldwide celebrity, not United States celebrity. And aside from all of the sporting events that you have been a huge part of, you knew you made it big when you were spoofed on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> 1992. <laughs> Middle weekend, February. Scott and I were in, involved in our very first Olympics. Uh-huh. And he said to me before we started, oh, well, I, I don't feel any pressure. All I'm doing is replacing Dick Button. And I said, well, there's no pressure on me. All I'm doing is replacing Jim McKay. So let's go. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we got through it. And to a degree that I never thought would be under, understandable because on the middle weekend, which would have been February something uh, in 1992, we both got phone calls from New York and said, did you hear that last night, uh, Saturday night, like the four and a half minute parody of you, you guys and Dana Carvey played Scott and he killed it. And, and Phil Hartman, the late Phil Hartman played me with a degree of unctuousness that I thought, oh, come on, I'm not that bad. Well, I am. I was. And and it is just uh, Jason Priestley, who was a star then of Beverly Hills 90210, was the skater. And if you've <laughs> never seen it, it's available on YouTube. And, and I use it in presentations to this day. When we were on this cruise ship, and I was, you know, a month and a half ago, and I was speaking, 
and I came to the figure skating part, I do two videos. I do one of Tanya Harding on that night uh, when she, as, as Scott said off camera, she's hijacked the Olympics and the bootlace broke and all that stuff. Uh, suspiciously in my view. Oh, wow. Uh, really? Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. What, 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 what benefit would she have from that? An excuse for not placing. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's the suspicion. Never, ever been proved. You know, the, the cartoon show worked because the ratings for that show were off the chart. Yeah. And uh, uh, the next morning we went to practice, went Thursday morning, the Wednesday night show. And Neil Pilson, who was then our chairman of the board of sports, uh, was there and he said, have you guys heard about the overnights? I said, no. Well, we got a 48.5. Wow. It means 48.5% of every television set in America was tuned in. And the estimated rating was 126 million people. And I think that estimate has been downsized. But to this day, as far as I know, it is the highest rated non-Super Bowl sporting event that's ever been televised. And uh, wow. matter of fact, you can't see it, but back over my, my left shoulder, back here on the wall, I can see it right here. There's a, a frame with two mic flags. And that those are the mic flags from the Wednesday night show and uh, and the Friday night show. And our production supervisor was a wonderful guy named Bob Tiley. And Bob said, I thought maybe you'd want to have these. And so uh, they're treasured mementos of that whole that whole two weeks in, in Norway. That is great. I'm telling you, man, I cannot think of someone who has been a part of so much sports history because you weren't just, I guess, pigeonholed into one sport. You did it all. And you were there for the 1992 NCAA tournament. Christian Leitner shot at the buzzer to give Duke the win over Kentucky. I mean, you have been a part of everything, Vern. What do you remember from that night? Oh, brother, brother. Uh, yeah, almost everything, uh, especially the finish. Yeah. Uh, just to refresh viewers' minds, Duke and Kentucky met in the, the Elite Eight championship. The other two teams that were involved were uh, Seton Hall in Massachusetts, UMass, coached by John Calipari. And in this case, it was one versus two. But Kentucky had been on probation for four years because of recruiting violations. And uh, Duke was favored because they had three All-Americans. They had Leitner, they had Grant Hill, and then they had Bobby Hurley, all three All-Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, Kentucky's star was a sophomore who was a great player named uh, Jamal Mashburn. But uh, it, was, it was a terrific game almost from the start, back and forth and back and forth. And then went to overtime. And uh, my most vivid recollection is of overtime because a fellow named Sean Woods hit a bank shot with 2.1 seconds remaining in overtime off over Kristen Leitner, off the glass and through. And Leitner and the, the guys, they'd been coached, just get timeout called as quickly. And they did immediately. And uh, they went to the huddle and drew up the play. Uh, and the play was for Grant Hill, 6'8 sophomore, uh, to throw the pass 
let me elaborate on the story a little bit uh, to throw the pass to, to Leitner. And uh, to this day, in my view, Rick Pitino regrets the fact that he, he should have guarded the inbound pass. He didn't, and he defends that decision. But he did tell his two guys that were back, John Pelfrey and Derek Feldhouse, do not foul. And that's important to the, the execution of the play because here was Grant Hill, unimpeded. He throws and it twisted a little bit, but the clock starts when, when Leitner touches the ball and he had the presence of mind to take a step to the right and he knew he had time to turn around and take the jump shot. And it went in. And, uh, you know, Duke wins 104-103. And I worked with Lenny Elmore. My regular partner during those subsequent years was Bill Raftery. But Bill and I had not been together for a while. So Lenny Elmore, who was an All-American at Maryland uh, and then a Harvard Law School graduate, was sitting by my side. And Leslie Visser was with us as our Hall Hall of Famer was with us as our sideline reporter. When the game was over, I had the time to reflect that Calvin and Janet Hill were, were Grant Hill's parents. And Calvin and I were really good friends. He was the number one draft pick of the Cowboys out of Yale in 1969. And we became friends. And Janet uh, was uh, once a suite mate of Hillary Rodham, it, oh, wow. at Wellesley. And so Grant had intellectual chance of great, great promise. But Calvin and I were, were friends to the degree that I knew that they were expecting. And I was doing local television at, at the time. And uh, I said, in addition to other stuff, and I said, when Janet gives birth, give me a call. I'd like to announce his birth, the child's birth. And so he called me on a Friday, October 5th, in 1972, and he said, uh, 9.30 this morning, Janet gave birth to Grant Henry Hill. Now, that Sunday, they're playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in Texas Stadium. And with a minute and a half to go in the game, Dallas trailing 13 to 10, uh, Roger Staubach pitched out to Calvin Hill. He sweeps right, throws a 50-yard halfback pass to a wide receiver out of Florida State named Ron Sellers. Tumbling catch, Cowboys win 17-13. And I looked, and here was this kid that I had whose, whose birth I had announced on television. Now he's a 6'8 sophomore. And he throws my, in my view, the basketball equivalent of a 50-yard pass. It was 70 feet. And Leitner made the shot historically. And I looked over at the bench, and there were Grant and Janet sitting right behind the Duke bench. And so I was able to tell that story before we left the air. That is and so one, cool. one, one other thing, Keith, about Mike Krzyzewski. Uh, and I so respect this. Kaywood Ledford was a legendary, brilliant play-by-play voice of Kentucky and had been for 39 years. And he had announced before the season began that whenever Kentucky lost, or if they did not lose and won the national title, that would be his last game. So now Kentucky loses. And Mike Krzyzewski came off the bench and got involved in all the celebratory antics in the middle of the court. 
And instead of going to the Duke radio broadcast, anchored by a guy named Bob Harris, he turned around a circle back and went live on the postgame show with Kay Wood Ledford so that he, Mike Krzyzewski, could thank Kay Wood Ledford for his contributions to the sport of college basketball. Just a class act. Mm. And Bob Ryan was a wonderful columnist for the Boston Globe. And after the game, after 10 minutes after the game, we're still sitting there trying to absorb what we had seen. We knew it was historic. And Bob Ryan drifted over. He had covered the 1974 uh, Maryland-North Carolina State game that went to overtime. Maryland had a brilliant guard named David Thompson. And that was regarded, widely regarded as the greatest game ever played. And Bob Ryan stopped in front of our desk and said, Lenny, I've got a question. Was this game more significant than that game? And Lenny gave it 10 seconds and looked up and he said, I think this one was more important because this was to get to the final four. And it gave context for me to understand. And I, I still, you know, many people still think it's the greatest college game ever played. Now, if Gordon Hayward from Butler had hit that in the playoffs against Duke, by the way, in the national championship game, he flung one up from 50 feet that would have won the game and it climbed off. If that had gone in, I think we'd be talking about it. Who do you think is second? Well, that Duke-Kentucky game was pretty well, pretty good. (laughs) And I think those of us associated with the broadcast, the the producer was Craig Silver, Mm. who now does our lead. uh, He's lead producer on SEC coverage. The director is Mike Arnold, who is now the lead NFL director. So those two guys have done very well for themselves. And what we have in common, I think most memorably, is that one night, uh, March 28th in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so talking about some of the greatest games of all time, obviously people know Uncle Vern uh, as the voice of SEC football. I mean, you were there for the longest time announcing Saturday games. And I know that Auburn beat Georgia on a Hail Mary. Got it. Okay, yep. and then two weeks later was the Iron Bowl. And I think if I recall, you said that, and stop me if this is not accurate, I think you described that as the most memorable college football game that you have ever announced, correct? The Auburn-Alabama 2013 Iron Bowl. Yes, I did. And I still feel that way. A bit more about Georgia-Auburn. Auburn had lost once early in the season to LSU, but otherwise they had an unblemished record. And they're playing Georgia in Auburn. And, uh, they faced a deficit, and they had fourth and 18 uh, with a minute to go, something like that. And their quarterback was a kid named Nick Marshall. And on fourth and 18, he just heaved it as far as he could. And two defenders were back for Georgia. And logic tells you, go. it's fourth down, 18. Knock the ball down. Right. One of the kids went for the interception. Think, think, think. Mm-hmm. And he tipped the ball forward. And Ricardo Lewis was running under it, reached back, tipped the ball, and caught it and went in. And Georgia lost. Auburn won. So in the summation on camera, Gary Danielson, my beloved partner, said, 
That's the greatest college football we'll ever see. No, no finish to a college will ever surpass that. Uh, see, I'm glad, I'm glad you're saying it like this because that's why I asked the question the way I did because you guys were, were thinking, oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. We've already seen the greatest college football game yeah. of all time, and you had to wait how long? Two weeks. Two weeks. <laughs> Two weeks. And now we're, now we're at uh, – oh, I can't, now we're at, at Auburn again for the Iron Bowl, and it now is the greatest college game I've ever seen. Uh, I, I get asked a lot, Keith, about, okay, you've been lucky. You've done a lot of significant events, memorable events rate them, rank them. And I've always said, well, Jack, you know, I think it's age related. Uh, Jack's six months older than I am. And I tried not ever let him forget that. Uh, uh, he's 82 and a half. <laughs> uh, but Mike Vaccaro, who's a wonderfully gifted sports columnist for the New York Post, the next day wrote a column in which he said, uh, Auburn, Alabama in 2013 provided the greatest finish to a single sporting event ever. And he listed eight reasons why. And I said to myself, maybe I better reassess. And I think about it, and it's, it's certainly here again, you, you, you go to an event, you hope something memorable occurs, you hope that you're capable of, of putting a headline on it verbally, uh, and uh, adding to the moment, but to have two games like that, and then to have Auburn now, I mean, people forget on the first play of the fourth quarter, AJ McCarron hit Amari Cooper for a 99 yard touchdown. And that's an afterthought now. Yeah. And then Sammy Coates uh, catches a pass of 38 yards, I believe with only 37 seconds left. And then Alabama's kickoff, TJ Eldon, gets the kickoff, and he goes up across the, the midfield, heads left, and in front of the Alabama bench, steps out of bounds, and it took him seven minutes for them, the, the officiating crew and the replay guys, to decide if they're – because the game had been declared over. And, and Nick Saban threw the challenge flag. The red flag comes out, and he says, I believe we got a second left. And they took seven minutes. They wanted to coordinate our end zone view with a sideline game view so that they were synchronized and they could determine. And the, the official, who's a really good friend of mine, Matt Austin was the referee, and he came on and famously said, please put one second back on the clock. And Nick was angry with his senior kicker who had missed three or four field goals, including one block. So he decides to send out this red shirt freshman who was an immigrant from Poland. And he tries a 57 yarder and it comes up short. And Chris Davis, I, I do, I do a zoom call every Wednesday uh, with friends from the SEC. Uh, and it's a bunch of old reprobates. We're, we're all getting on, but I'd love doing it. And we, we hash it out, share memories and, different topics come up and we just talked about this this week the the auburn alabama the iron bowl game and we were telling stories about where we were and what we were doing and i don't think it's been surpassed i mean for that kick to be returned 109 yards and i i've shared maybe i've shared this but uh, i 
I hope I've learned from Ray Scott, one of my role models, minimalism. Don't shut up, just lay out and, and don't over talk it. So needless to say, I've seen that play. And I've like the Saturday Night Live thing. I've seen the Iron Bowl hundreds of times. And at the end, I said, there are no flags, touchdown Auburn, and then added the, the punctuation point of an answered prayer. And I thought to myself, just for that long, dear God, don't let there be any flags on the field. And fortunately, there weren't. And, uh, and so, and that's the thing about YouTube. Like, for example, oh. the Saturday Night Live thing happens. You know, I, I have no idea how much time passed before you got to visually see that. Today, we have YouTube and social yep. media, which, yep. by the way, you're very wise to stay off of. And congrats yep. to you. Yep. <laughs> yep. No Twitter, no Facebook, no not, nothing. I got this far. I ain't going to do it. No, no. But the great thing about the resource of YouTube is when you have some of these sports memories or something come up and you want to relive them, you know, I have a closet full of, well, let me back up. I'm an Atlanta Falcons fan, so there's not that much in the closet, but there are old videotapes, you know, and you just have to get out the VCR and, and go back and watch. Now you yeah. can just type oh, yeah. in a few things on the internet and, and relive those moments. And that's why some of these brilliant calls that you've had are so easily accessible for people. So I would encourage people, in fact, if they go to your Wikipedia page, the Vern Lundquist Wikipedia page, Someone has nicely put all these awesome calls that you've had over the years and just go through them and go to YouTube and, and you know, cross-reference them. You know, one of them, of course, um, Tiger Woods, the 2005 Masters with the chip in, uh -huh. which just, uh, and I love how you describe in the book how the director held that shot uh, on the ball as it just rested there on the edge for 1.8 seconds and then fell in. And my goodness, without that incredible shot, Yep. He doesn't make the playoff, doesn't win the Masters. But again, one of those awesome moments that, that you were a part of. Well, let me let me add this too, Keith. Uh, uh, at, at 17 in 1986, that was that was Jack Nicholas. It was and I don't mean this irreverently, but that was not Tom Kite. Uh, I think we would have remembered Tom Kite sinking that butt, but it was Jack Nicholas. And again, in 05 at 16, that was Tiger Woods. It was not Chris DeMarco who was playing with him. If it had been DeMarco, remarkable. But I think we'd have forgotten about it the next year. But mm. and for me, just selfishly, to have my calls associated with Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods, I'll take that anytime. And, and I love how, how your nephews are basically you know, oh, yeah. over, over the, the, oh, yeah. the two, the two signed uh, pictures there in the office. Yeah. When I, I told them when Nancy and I passed that uh, one will get one photograph and they're both signed. I'm not an autograph collector, but in this case, I mean, it was Jack Nicholas and it was Tiger Woods. So I've got both of them here in the office. My nephews uh, who are in their early fifties now, but they're both small college All-American golfers, they were. And, and they dominate amateur golf in their hometown of Austin. They're wow. really gifted. So I, we, Nancy and I said, when we're gone, one of you gets Tiger and one of you gets Jack. And so 
then Tiger fell off the face of the earth in terms of public uh, acceptance, I think. And so after that happened, uh, in the midst of it, really, my younger nephew, Dean, said, Uncle Vern, has my brother called you about either one of those photos? And I said, no, you guys, you're the first one to call. He said, good. I want Nicholas. And so he's going to get Jack. Okay. And Keith will get, uh, will get Tiger. So you just mentioned Nancy, uh, your lovely wife. Yep. And I've got to say, <laughs> the way you describe how you were able to land her um, when you were out, uh, right? I mean, this is, Vern, I'm telling you, man, I'm listening to that, and I'm thinking, I mean, this is mad respect for Vern Lundquist and his game, man. How you <laughs> uh, moved in on her, you know? I mean, that was so yeah, good. I don't yeah. know how much of that story you want to tell just, here. That's so funny because we are hosting a group of 10 this weekend, beginning okay. at lunch today, who bid on spending a weekend uh, for with Nancy and me in Steamboat Springs. Okay. And they're a wonder the, the the main couple who put it together, a wonderful couple from Houston, uh, Philip and Susan Dunn. And we just had lunch with them uh, at noon downtown. And they asked, I wish Nancy was here to tell you her version, because she she really she's she's got but I will I will give you a synopsis. And it's not even the clip notes. It's this is what happened. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I was recently divorced in 1979. And uh, Nancy and I were uh, now, well, I was, I was single. I was on the air in Dallas. Uh, so there's this phenomenon of local television that somehow this magic works and you go into people's homes and there's an assumption because they know you, who you are you would know who they are. And mm -hmm. I have had it happen to me over the years. So anyway, I'm suddenly single. I'm trolling. There's no other word for it. <laughs> and I, I went to this club called Arthur's, which we both hastened to add. We tell this, this story was really an upscale bar. It was associated to a restaurant, very, very nice restaurant called Arthur's. And, uh, it's 11 o'clock at night. And I stopped in for a nightcap at Arthur's, our first drink, because I've been on the air. And uh, I walk in, and Nancy is sitting at the bar, and her date is standing up uh, adjacent to her. And he looks at, sees me walk in. He said, well, uh, that's Fern. Uh, let's invite him over for a drink. And Nancy kind of nodded with diffidence. She wasn't really intrigued by the idea. And so Raymond invited me to come join them. And he had a, a buddy of his stockbroker named Paul Bass who was standing by him. So I walk over, I'm introduced, Nancy's sitting down. And I, I said that night, she's got the greatest smile I've ever seen in my life. And I still feel that way 40 years later, 42. And uh, so Raymond has an idea. He said, I, I know you're suddenly divorced. I don't want you hanging around trying to pick up women in bars. He said, I've got an idea. Uh, can you take some time between the shows on Thursday night between six and 10? I said, Oh yeah, I'll, really it's a rehash and I've just got to update the scores. 
So he said, good, I've got a school teacher in mind and I would like for you to, to come up and uh, to have a date with her. And he looked down at Nancy and said, uh, what are you doing Thursday night? She said, nothing. And he said, well, good. Would you, would you go out with me and uh, we'll double date? And she said, yeah, sure. Glad to do that. So now I keep looking at her and I think, good gosh almighty, she's gorgeous. Yeah. And Raymond finally nature called and he excused himself. I knew I had about five minutes. So <laughs> I disingenuously said, would you like to dance? And we get on the dance floor and I said, uh, Nancy, uh, how long have you been dated, dating Raymond? She said, it's a blind date arranged by my, uh, my doctor. We just, we never just met this night. <laughs> and with Cobra like thoughts in my head, I said, I got to strike quickly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, forget about what he's talking about Thursday night. And <laughs> what are you doing Saturday night? And she said, I think I'm doing whatever you're doing. Oh, I love it. And so that was a third, that was a Tuesday night. We had our first date on Saturday night and we did all honest to God. We fell in love that first night. Uh, just, it was magic. And here we are, both of us, Keith had been married twice before. And mm. so we had a couple in the toilet and, uh, and we were cautious. <laughs> so we, we did, we went to marital counseling to make sure yeah. of our commitment to each other. And it was beneficial beyond all ability to, my ability to describe, but we waited two years. And the, the sidebar to this whole story is that my father was a Lutheran minister mm -hmm. and he had married me the first time and the second time. Now, after a two year period, we decide, well, we're committed to each other. Let's do this. So I went to my dad and I said, Nancy and I have decided to get married. Would you do the ceremony? And he looked at me with this mischievous grin on his face. And he said, okay, but this is the last damn time. <laughs> oh, well, we listened to him. Yeah. We listened that's to him. Great. And uh, we're, we're, we just celebrated our 40th at Augusta in April. How and, great. Uh, we're, Man. you know, like anybody's marriage or relationship, they're, they're highs and lows. It's kind of a roller coaster but for for the most part they've been all highs for us so that is what we are i'm so happy for you yeah, um me too. i learned uh, yeah i i learned from uh your book that, that you gave the induction speech at the pro football hall of fame for terry bradshaw which i thought was very cool i love how you and he used to be broadcast partners and i hope that you will please take a moment to tell us about uh you guys's favorite NFL football player Willie Anderson. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this yeah, is hysterical. It's unbelievable. It is unreal. <laughs> and I'll try and tell this story as I do in speeches. By the way, uh, Terry and I uh, been back in touch recently. I did have the honor and privilege of introducing him to the Hall of Fame, uh, presenting him in 89 and this this group that's here visiting us came as a result of a fundraiser that i host every year for texas lutheran university it's called front row and over the years we've had uh, because of what i've done for a living and the people i've met we've had some outstanding 
characters, Charles Barkley, uh, Archie Manning, uh, David Faraday, uh, I'll go on and on and on, Roger Staubach, Troy Aikman. Anyway, uh, Terry was our guest uh, last March, and he just killed it. He was so funny. And we had not been in touch for a long time. But when we were working together, our first year was in 1984. And I'd gone to CBS to do college football. And then I got a call and they said, uh, Terry is retiring from the Steelers. We're going to put you two together and you're going to start as the number eight team mm. on the hierarchy. Because he'd never done television. I'd been doing college. I'd done the NFL, but, you know, I came there to do college. So we're at our very first production meeting. And we've got... Detroit at, at uh, New Orleans, and as befitting our status within the hierarchy, the game was going to only Detroit because in those years, it had to be sold out in the home market for the game to be televised. So in 84, uh, we're doing that game, and at the production meeting, Terry said, I got an idea. I got an idea. Let's get us a name for football player. And I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, well, here's my concept. He didn't use the word concept. Here's, here's my idea. Uh, uh, you know how on every kicking situation, the kickoff, you know the kicker. You always know the kickoff return man. Every punting situation, you know the punter. You know the punt return man. But all that stuff that goes on in the middle, nobody really knows what that is. He said, let's invent us a football player. And I said, give me an idea how it works. And he told me his idea. So here's what happened. We got New Orleans at home against Detroit. Here's Morton Anderson. He kicks off and he uh, kicks it deep to Billy Sim. Billy's got it at the goal line. He's out to the 10. He's at the 20. He's at the 30. Oh, my gosh. A vicious tackle at the 40-yard line. Terry, I'll tell you what, Bubba. That was some tackle by Willie Anderson a free agent defensive back from Colby College in Maine. Uh, we never mentioned a number. Now the next week, we're, we're in <laughs> Tampa Bay for Atlanta at Tampa Bay, unless, uh, again, it's point to point. Those are just those two markets. Uh-huh. And, okay, here's, here's the punt. And it's uh, Mickey Spillane back to punt uh, from the 35-yard line. There he kicks it deep. And uh, – James Patterson's got it at the 20. He's out to the 30, the 35, he's to the 40. Oh, he gets a great block across midfield and finally tackled at the 42-yard line. I'll tell you what, Bubba, that was some block by Willie Anderson, a free agent defensive back from Colby College in Maine. <laughs> Willie played 14 games in the NFL that year. <laughs> Different team every week. Different we never, team every ever, We never used a number. And, and uh, at the end of the season, our producer, Mike Burks, called Colby College in Maine. And he said, I'm Mike Burks, CBS Sports. And the guy said, who are you? He said, I'm Mike Burks. I'm a producer at CBS Sports. And the guy said, what the hell is going on with you people? He said, I got alumni calling me. What year did Willie Anderson play here? We got no record of Willie Anderson ever playing here. What are you doing to us? Uh, and Mike said, well, that's really why I'm calling. Look at all the publicity you've gotten at Colby College. 
Uh-huh. And the guy understood, and Mike said, uh, would you send me eight Colby College T-shirts? I'm going to give them to the, to the crew. And so <laughs> I just got up in Nancy's office upstairs on her wall is a picture of eight of us with Terry in the middle, Nancy in the picture, and we're all wearing Colby College. Man. I still, and that was in 84. And so here we are, 38 <laughs> years later, and I've still got, I've still, still got the T-shirt. I can't wear it anymore, but we still have. <laughs> I love that story so much. And man, I remember as a kid watching the Fog Bowl that you mm-hmm. did on December 31st, 1988, between the Eagles and the Bears. That was to watch that on TV. I was equal parts frustrated. And knowing that I was also watching history, you know, yeah. that was such a ridiculous game, even more so. I didn't realize this until I read in your book, Play by Play, that, that the fog was just right there over the stadium. Yeah. Only. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> On the 20th anniversary, which would have been 2009, ESPN did a five or six minute feature on that game. Both Terry and I were featured in the in the piece, uh, and David Michaels, who was a producer of that one, is also Al Michaels' little little brother, younger brother, oh. and uh, uh, we're all part of the the memory. And what I most remember is with two minutes and twenty seconds to go in the first half, we looked down to our south at Soldier Field. There was a private airfield that jutted out into Lake Michigan, and we saw this cloud bank move in over. But we thought it was a fire of some sort. I mean, we really did. Now, this thing comes in and settles and stayed there for the remainder of the game. And Jim Tunney was the referee. And uh, Terry and I were upstairs. Musburger, by the way, was uh, our pregame host. And Brent was in the the, uh, end zone. But NFL rules at that time did not allow sideline reports. So we could not go down. And Terry has told me, in retrospect, he wishes that he had gone down uh, and just ignored the rules so he could see what was going on down below because we couldn't see anything. And Tony Jim, uh, in this in this remembrance, said, I knew the announcers were having trouble locating the ball. And so I got on the PA and I announced down the distance. The amazing thing in retrospect, is that Randall Cunningham threw for 400 yards in that game. Yep. Wow. Now we, we get, we find, and, and uh, Chicago won. There was Buddy Ryan coming back against Mike. Mike right, right. Oh, they hated each other. And, uh, <laughs> and there was no love loss between either team either. And, well, Ryan induced that in his players, just that kind of guy. Um and now we, we go to the airport out of O'Hare. And the minute we got out of downtown Chicago, it was sunlight. It was extraordinary. But that thing sat there for however long, three or four hours. I'm just looking up, Googling the final score, 20 to 12. You're telling me Randall Cunningham, he said over 400 yards passing and they mm-hmm. only scored 12 points? Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. I have to ask, does Vern Lundquist play fantasy football? No, I don't. Okay. And let's see here. What is the biggest change that you have seen in sports? This may be impossible to answer, 
and your time covering it, sir? Social media. I okay. think I just the, the impact of social media is so extreme. Uh, I think it's changed the way we relate to it. Uh, athletic competition, mm-hmm. uh, the way we visit with each other about it, the way we gossip about it, that and, and Amazon Prime. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> holy cow. Who right. would have ever thought, ever thought? And yet we watched last night. We got a, we finally joined the 21st century and we got a smart TV. And so we watched <laughs> Al and, and Kirk Herbstreit. And by the way, I think they, they compliment each other nicely. Yeah. I, I think they're doing a fine job. I know them both, almost in equal measure. I mean, Kirk, I know better because game day has been around so many college games we did. And uh-huh. uh, so I know Chris and Kirk and Corso and, and Desmond Howard. Uh, I know I know Al uh, because uh, we were, well, at one point, Keith, in 1974, when I got my first college football assignment, that's at ABC, September 74. The number one announcer was Keith Jackson. Number two was Chris Schenkel. Number three was Al Michaels. And I was number four. And uh, that's a pretty good group of folks to be in, in, in whose company you're allowed to stay. Absolutely. You mentioned the streaming being so different. I just want to put that into perspective, if I may. You mentioned how games uh, being blacked out in your home markets. Growing up in Atlanta as a Falcons fan, I, I feel that you might um, get a kick out of this. I, I can't believe I'm telling the story. I actually, I had a little, little black and white TV and I would run an extension cord up to the highest point of my yard, put it on top of a ladder because I was attempting to get the Falcons game out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, and to think where we have come from a little TV with an antenna pointed north out of Atlanta to streaming through the magic of the internet, it's fascinating. It's just, it's unbelievable how technology has changed the way we communicate. Yeah. Uh, So I have one last question for you. I just have to know, because you have to know, how many people adore you from the movie Happy Gilmore? And you talk about this in the book and how many yeah. people come up to you and quote you from the movie. I hope that you realize how, how much we just love that you are in that movie, Vern. Uh, Keith, it is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, <laughs> it really, really, really does. Because... <laughs> Uh, we filmed the movie in 1996. We filmed my part of it in at Whistler in British Columbia, in Vancouver. And uh, I flew up the night before to Vancouver. Uh, they picked me up, and I got the whole thing. I got a chair with my name on the back. They put me in a trailer for hair and makeup, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we filmed all of the scenes that I was in, and I'm all over the last half of the movie. And and I actually met Adam Sandler. I I'm, I'm keep going back to this wall over here, but I'm looking at right over here, and there's a picture of of uh, Dennis Dugan, who was the PGA commissioner and director of the movie. Wow. Myself, uh, a guy named Jack Garaputo, who was the, the silent character sitting next to me. Okay. He was Adam Sandler's roommate at 
New York University Film School. Uh, there's <laughs> Adam Sandler and, uh, and the guy who played the caddy with the beard. Uh, mm -hmm. And we took that picture after, after the scenes were done. And when I say it keeps on giving, uh, it's connected me across two generations. Uh, yeah. Uh, it really has. And it's on cable television all the time now. And I'll give you one small example. Quite a few years ago, I'm doing a television game, uh, North Carolina at, uh, at uh, Arizona. And I was working with Billy Packer. And Roy Williams was a coach at North Carolina, Lou Dolson at, at Arizona. And Roy had a rule. You were not allowed to sit down at courtside when you watched. You could watch practice, but you had to sit up. And when he disciplined his kids, he sometimes used language not acceptable in, in family circumstances. And so he didn't want us to overhear that. Well, we could hear it anyway, but what the heck. So we were standing, <laughs> sitting upstairs, and the practice ended. And they're going through their uh, post-practice exercise programs and they're all laying on the floor stretching and um, stretching with rubber ropes and all that kind of stuff and this tall lanky red shirt comes loping up towards where billy and me and our producer bob dinkus were sitting and he said uh, mr lundquist the team would like you to come down and talk to him and i said you mean billy packer no 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 they've asked for you and i said really he said yeah please follow me down so I get up out of the seat, walk down the aisle, get on the floor, and I'm standing uh, right in front of Tyler Hansborough, their 610 All-American Center. And he's down on the floor looking up at me. And I said, what can I do for you guys? He said, give us the line from Happy Gilmore. <laughs> and I knew exactly what he wanted. Yeah, you did. So, I put my hand imaginarily over a microphone, turned my head and said, who the hell is Happy Gilmore? And the whole darn team started laughing. I bet. Yeah. And, you know, I get residuals from that. Once wow. every quarter. Yeah. Uh, last one we got was $37. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah. To this day, Keith, honest to God, uh, I'll get packages in the mail and photographs. There's some site on, on the internet where you can go and, and, and it's usually not, well, there are several photos, but always it seems there are two or three of the scene when I'm sitting with Jack Jarapudo and I put my hand over the mic and they, you know, please autograph this self-addressed stamp envelope and send it back. And that happens weekly wow. uh, to this day. And that was in 1996. So, we're talking 26 years ago. I tell you what, Vern Lundquist, you have no idea what an honor this conversation was for me, sir. I am so grateful for your time. I, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you for walking us down memory lane and, and, and just being a part of this show today. Well, Keith, thank you very much. I hope you'll stay in touch. I've enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much, sir. And I absolutely will. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. It was truly a pleasure, such a treat, to get to know legendary sportscaster Vern Lundquist. My goodness, he has been a part of so many historical moments throughout sports history, and I appreciate you sitting down for that conversation as well. Next week, we're going to sit down with Brian Kilmeade of Fox News Channel. You know him from Fox & Friends, which comes on every morning on your TV screen. 
We have a good conversation lined up for you next week here on At The Mic. Now, until then, if you feel that we've earned it, I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review this podcast. Please do give it five stars over at Apple iTunes or Spotify. Feel free to send us a note through the website at themicshow.com. And don't forget the YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash at the mic with Keith. I really want to emphasize that as we get closer to Veterans Day, because on Friday, November 11th, 2 p.m. Eastern, we're going to do a live stream and raise money for important veterans' causes and do some good for our heroes. So you subscribing over there would be greatly appreciated. Also, please take a moment to share just one episode of this podcast with someone in your world as we look to grow this audience. And we can only do that with your help. So thank you so much. Send them this one, the Vern Lundquist episode. There is something for everyone in this conversation. So thank you for spreading the word. Well, until we sit down again, I do hope above all else that you will go be free. And thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to at themicshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect. Yeah.